Right, we'll just have that first slide up, please. That's my prayer. Send the fire today. Robert rang me up a few weeks ago and said, would you like to do something on apologetics? Well, that's my kind of passion. And um, so I want to talk to you this morning about whatever happened to the frog. And you know the story, you put a frog in water and you heat it up and you can eventually cook it. So the theory goes. And so my question is, if that's true, where are we as individuals, as a church, and as a nation, in the water. Yeah. Now, I want to share on a part of Scripture this morning that some of you are going to find pretty challenging. Um, you might find it quite provocative, and you might be a little bit uncomfortable about some of that. But that's okay. At the end of it, or during it, I want to ask you to ask yourself three questions. One, is what I'm saying true? Is it true? Secondly, does it accurately represent what Scripture is saying, okay? And about our church and our culture and us individually. And thirdly, what should our response be? So first, is it true? Does it conform to Scripture? And thirdly, what should our response be? Now look, if you disagree with me this morning, that's okay. You can come and talk to me about it. I'm not going to bite your head off. And if you're disturbed or whatever, come and have a talk to me about it because we need to work through what God is saying to us. Okay, let's turn to Scripture. And I hope some of you read the Scriptures that I put in the newsletter. 2 Kings 21, let's start there. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. If any of you ladies are looking for a new name for your children, that's a good place to start. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole as Ahab king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said in Jerusalem, I'll put my name. And in both courts of the temple, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Verse 16. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end, besides the sin that he caused Judah to commit, so that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. If you go over to chapter 22, it's a bit more positive. It's a story about Josiah, who was his grandson. He was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkah. 
He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. It goes on. He gave some money to the people in the temple to, to um, do some work. And what it says here, Hilkiah the high priest in, in verse 8 said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And so he gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then they handed it on to the king and the king heard about this and he really responded. And if you go over into chapter 23, the king called together all the elders of Judah, went up to the temple, got the people of Jerusalem, the priests, all together. They read the, the book of the law to them. And then it goes over into chapter 13, chapter 12. Um, he pulled down the altars that the kings of Judah had erected and uh, he removed them from there. He smashed them to pieces. He desecrated the high places and so on and so on. And over to verse 21, he commanded the people to celebrate the Passover, and they hadn't been doing that. Now, I've skipped over a lot of that, but what I really encourage you to do is to read, go back and read it, because I'm going to speak on three things in here that are really, really important, that relate to us and to our culture. And so why ask the question, what's happening to the frog? Well, because history is really important. We can understand stuff from history. If we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat the same mistakes. And what we're seeing in here is being repeated in our country right now. It's quite scary. And Manasseh had inherited the kingship. He'd co-reigned with his father Hezekiah for a number of years. Hezekiah was one of the most godly kings that Israel had. It was a wonderful time in the nation of Israel. Sure, there was sin and all that kind of stuff. But it was a great time. Manasseh comes along and he reigned for 55 years and he literally turned Israel or Judah into a hellhole. In 55 years, he changed the nation from being a godly nation that honored God to a nation where they were sacrificing their own children on the altar. And there are three things that we need to take note of that relate to our day. I want you to note in all of this the key role of leadership. Leadership is a key in all of what we're talking about. The first thing he did was he betrayed the heritage of his father, Hezekiah. In other words, he's turned his back on it and said, I know better. I'm going to do what I want to do. I don't give a darn about what my father, Hezekiah, had done. I know best. I'm going to do my own thing. And so in verse 3, it says he rebuilt the... Um, Let's go back here. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah destroyed. He turned his back on his heritage, put in place a whole lot of false gods. And what we see here is a prodigal culture, a culture that's a prodigal culture. In other words, a culture that had deliberately turned away from his father and turned to false gods. And there are consequences in every nation that does that. And we are seeing some of those consequences in New Zealand right today. And so when you, when you end up worshipping a whole lot of gods, you have a whole lot of divided loyalties in the country. You don't have one god you're worshipping. You're worshipping a whole lot of different things, different value systems. They're going in different directions. They have different values. And we're seeing the same thing in New Zealand. Now, our nation was built on a judo-Christian basis and a belief in a creator. The name of God was sacred. Human life was sacred. Man was made in the image of God. Sexuality was sacred. Marriage was sacred. A person's word was sacred. His property was sacred. All that has changed in New Zealand. 
It's changed. And I know it wasn't perfect back in the 60s and 70s, but I want to say it was a darn sight safer and a darn sight more peaceful than it is today. You know, I went into the post office at Parklands the other week and there were two security guards in there. I couldn't believe it. And I said to the lady on the counter, I said, what's the story with these? She said, if that's what it takes, that's what she said, if that's what it takes. Parklands, two security guards in the post office, what's our country coming to? Schools are now being taught how to do lockdowns, just in the news the other day. What's our country coming to? Why are we here? Why is this happening? You see, if you turn away from something, it creates a vacuum. Other things come in. And that's what we've seen in New Zealand. G.K. Chesterton, who was a famous British author and writer in there, he said, don't pull a fence down until you've asked why it was put up in the first place. That makes sense, doesn't it? It may make sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to a lot of our leaders. See, we've removed the fences around things that were sacred, around the person and name of God. The blasphemy law is gone. We removed the fence around the sacredness of human life. And look what's happening. It's no longer sacred. Passing a new abortion law. Having an abortion, we're no different to taking an appendix out. Removing the, the sacredness of, of human life. What about around the sanctity of marriage? We've removed the fence around the sanctity of marriage. And we did that years ago. And look at the consequences. We've removed the, uh, the, the, um, the fence around truth. In 2016, the word for year, word of the year was non-truth. Get your head around that one. So we've got more fear, more certainty, more violence, more fragmentation, more confusion in our culture than I have ever seen in my life. And according to those who call them progressives, themselves progressive, they're going in the right direction. I call them regressives because we're going in the wrong direction. I want to show you, I want you to next put up a chart here, and this is, look at the consequences in, in this flow of history from 2000, 1960 to 2000. Twice the divorce rate, next one, three times the teenage suicide rate, it's higher than that now. Four times the rate of reported crime, five times the prison population, seven times the number of babies born to unmarried parents, and seven times the increase in cohabitation, and ten times the rate of depression since 2000, since World War II. See, history has a flow. It doesn't, doesn't go from day to day. It, but if you look over a period of time, you can see the consequences being played out in terms of what happens in a culture. And the reason why we've got the highest suicide rate in the Western world is not because people have just decided it's cool to kill themselves. It's because of what's been going on underneath and in our culture. And we are suffering the consequences of, of that. Does that scare you? Does that concern you? See, if you look at, the, and I'll just explain how some of the tensions come about. Now, we've got a Labour government that's, sure, it's concerned about the high rate of suicide. So they're, they're, they're putting money into that. But at the same time, they're trying to pass laws that enable assisted suicide. And there's two tensions going different ways. It's just crazy. You wonder why our society's fragmented. Because if you believe a whole lot of different values, you are going to be going in different directions. Whereas the Judeo-Christian value system says the life of man, of any human being, is made in the image of God. It's precious. It's precious before it's born. It's precious, it's precious and valuable while it's living. 
And even after a person's died, it's still valued because it's valued by God. When you remove that, you end up with all kind of confusion as what we're seeing in our culture today. And you can see why I'm asking questions about the frog in the water because we're the frog in the water. And sometimes we need to jump out. So one of the other things that concerns me is that the rate of change we're seeing in our culture is, is speeding up amazingly. I, I've never thought I'd see some of the things that I'm seeing now in our culture. I want to read you a poem. And Robert's going to forgive me if I go slightly over, but I hopefully won't. Um, a poem by a guy called Steve Turner. Now, this was written in 1993, and some of you have heard of it. But I want you to listen to it. He's not a Christian, this guy, by the way. He said, it's called the creed. This is the creed I have written on behalf of us, of all of us. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay, as long as you don't hurt anyone, to the best of your definition of hurt, and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that sodomy is okay. We believe that taboos are taboo. We believe that everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man, just like Buddha, Muhammad and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, although we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We, prophetic, isn't it? We believe that after death comes the nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's compulsory heaven for all, excepting perhaps Hitler, Stalin, and Genghis Khan. We believe in Masters and Johnson, what's selected is average, what's average is normal, what's normal is good. We believe in total disarmament. We believe that there are direct links between warfare and bloodshed. America should beat their guns into tractors, and the Russians would be sure to follow. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behaviour that lets him down. That's the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe there is no absolute truth, except the truth, there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. And listen to the postscript. Look at the postscript. This is chilling. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency, sniper calls 10 or 40 or 50 or 60, troops on the rampage, whites go looting, Bomb blast school, it's but the sound of man worshipping his maker. That's chilling, isn't it? Written by a non-Christian. It's our culture. Okay, so the first thing did, Manasseh did, turn his back on his godly inheritance, introduce new gods, and there were consequences. The second thing he did was he instituted a persecution of the prophets or God leaders. In other words, he silenced them. How do we know that? There's not a lot said in scripture about it, but there are references in the prophet Jeremiah, and we know from external sources that he did that. He silenced the leaders of his nation, the godly leaders. We also know that they lost the book of the law because it comes out in the story of Josiah. So how did they lose it? It's because the leaders, the people who were involved in it, had been killed. That's how they lost it. 
And see, this is what happens. Why, why, why were leaders like that silenced? Because when he was going a certain way, Manasseh, there were people that were saying, that's wrong, that's wrong. So you silence the, the people that disagree with you. Isn't that that's what's happened in history? Because they're, they're pricking their conscience, reminding them, that's not right, that's not what God said. The quickest way to silence somebody is to kill them. And of course, the king had all, was all-powerful in those days, and he did that. You say, well, it's not happening in New Zealand at present, isn't it? Let me tell you this. Joseph Stalin said that guns are more powerful than words. He said, we don't allow people to have guns, so why should we allow them to have words? It's a chilling statement. You look at New Zealand, you say, well, nobody's silencing the leaders in New Zealand, or uh, Christians. I want to tell you that the silence from our Christian leaders in New Zealand about what is happening is deafening. Can I repeat that? The silence from our Christian leaders in New Zealand about what is happening in our culture is deafening. Now, I'm not saying that's deliberate because they may not be given avenues to do that. But I ask the question, why? Because you'll always find a way if you want to speak out. Is it lack of conviction? Do they not believe the Bible anymore? Is it fear of man? Are they so busy trying to please people? Do they think their churches won't grow if they speak the truth? And I think a lot of them think that. They're soft gospel. So they preach all this nice, fuzzy stuff about positive being positive and all that sort of wacky stuff. You know, it's good, but you know what I mean. Um, so, and look, I have to say at times I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed because our leaders don't seem to be speaking out about what is happening. So if leaders don't speak out, there are downstream consequences. So if you don't hear Christian leaders speaking out nationally about issues, most people are followers, not leaders. What do they think? They think, well, if the leaders don't say anything about it, it must be okay. And so they take on board the values of the world because there's no one saying they're wrong. Do you hear what I'm saying? So what happens? You have an erosion of trust, of confidence as a believer in what you're actually believing. And it slowly erodes the trust that you have in what God's word actually says. And I've seen this in our culture and in our churches. Rob was talking before about the need for a shift in our church and in New Zealand. We need a big shift. And I'll tell you what it is in a minute. See, when we see an eroding of belief in God and his word, it's like water gets in the boat. And when water gets in the boat, it starts to sink. Most churches in New Zealand are not growing. They're sinking. And the reason is they've allowed the water of the world to get into the boat, and they're sinking. And what happens is that leaders look for quick fixes. There is no quick fix. And I don't have any quick fix solutions for what I'm talking about this morning. Let me give you some examples, other examples of the world silencing the church, the message of God. My wife went into the library the other day. She she's a, um, teaches at a, a Christian school, or a Catholic school, and wanted to buy some, some, get some children's books, children's stories on um, you know, Christian Bible stories. So she went into the central library. I kid you not, this is what I'm telling you is true. The Bible is the world's best-selling book. How many books do you think there were children's books on Bible stories in the main library in Christchurch? She, I said there was about that on a shelf about that. And I said to her the other day, you're saying about that? She said, oh, that might be exaggerating it a bit. Okay, that's number one. What about the Christchurch Press? 
When did you last see anything about Easter in the Christchurch press? When did you last see anything about Christmas in the Christchurch press? Ooh. When did you last see any articles from a conservative Christian viewpoint in the Christchurch press? I've had articles published in a large number of papers throughout New Zealand. I've never had one turned down until I came to Christchurch. I got so irritated about it, I rang up one of the editors one day and he said, oh, we practice being inclusive. And I said, what you mean is that you're inclusive to people that you agree with. You're not inclusive of everything else. You don't find any articles from conservative viewpoints. So they have effectively silenced the Christian voice in Christchurch. And they've done it very successfully. You know what I think you should do? I rang them up and I cancelled the paper. And they rang me back twice and said, why'd you cancel the paper? And I said, I'm sick of left-wing ideology being rammed down my throat and having to pay for, it, pay for it. And I said, furthermore, you don't have any investigative journalism. It's all biased, it's all slanted, and it's all slanted in one direction. So I cancelled it. And I'm suggesting to you that you do the same. You cancel it. Hit them where it hurts. They're concerned about it. They're losing subscriptions. Cancel the paper, because if you don't, you're actually aiding and abetting people that are working against us. Cancel it. If they get 40, 50, 100 or 500 people that rang up and cancelled the paper, they're going to start to take some notice. Otherwise, it just keeps going on. We've got to, as Christians, we have got to be far more proactive in what we do and not just bow down and say, yes, 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 that's the way it is, tut, 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 it's a problem. We need to do something about it. And that's one thing that you can do. You can cancel your paper. And when they ring up, you tell them. Okay, the third thing Manasseh did... He filled Jerusalem. Are you on board with me so far? Okay, cool. Haven't offended, upset anyone so far? No. Okay, he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Now, when you look at Nazi Germany, Hitler came to power in 1933. And it wasn't until about 1941-42 the gas chambers really started. But you know, the philosophy that drove all of this started way back, long before Hitler actually came to power. It started in the university um, lecture rooms where they started preaching evolutionary philosophy. And the consequence was what happened in the gas chambers. And what we're seeing in our culture today, we have a culture of death. And I'll explain what I mean in a minute. In verse 16, Manasseh shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end with the blood. But he sacrificed his own children, his own son. You know, I was telling my daughter about this the other day, and she said, Dad, I don't want to hear any more. don't want to hear any more. She was really concerned about it because she's got three kids. So when we remove the fences from all these things that are sacred, there are downstream effects. And one of the effects that's most, most hurtful in a sense for us as Christians and for God because it's the heart of God is the children that are being killed. And what, what Manasseh did, they, they offered up these sacrifices to the god Moloch. And let me just read what they did. Moloch was made of, this is from an ancient text, Moloch was made of brass. I think there's a picture up, if you have a look here. And they heated him from the lower parts, and his hands were stretched out and made hot. They put the child between his hands, he's hot, and it was burnt. And when it cried vehemently out, but the priest beat the drums, that the father might not hear the voice of his son, and his heart might not be removed. So what they do, they Bang, make as much noise as, as possible so the sounds of the screams of these children were drowned out and the screams of the children could be heard all over Jerusalem. 
As a mother, that must tear at your heart. Imagine the pain that was inflicted on the people whose children were, were ripped from them, as it were, or they were forced to do this. Now, the question is, somebody asked me the other day, why? Why did he do it? When you think about it, you think about it. When you turn your back on God, things fall apart. When you're worshipping other gods, the gods always provide the solutions for the problems they've created. It's like politicians provide the solutions for the problems they've created, and they create more problems. So I'll guarantee you that the people of Israel were told, these things are happening in the nation, and they're so terrible, they're so bad, that we have to offer up our children as offerings to the gods to avert the disasters that are coming upon us. See, there's always a reason given for the answers. And that's the only reason that I can think of. And politicians are always giving rationale for things that will only make things worse. We know that. So, you say, well, that's not happening here. Let's have a look. One in four babies were aborted in England and Wales in 2018. There were 675,000 babies born in 2018. One in four was aborted. One in four. That is a lot of babies. What about in America? Let's have a look. So, offering up children to the fire. Between 1970 and 2015, there 45.7 million babies aborted. How many were killed in the, death, in the gas chambers? Eight million? As Malcolm Mugger says, it only takes a generation to turn a war crime into an act of compassion. Killing babies. Okay, let's keep going. At least five states now offer full-term abortions, and all the Democratic leaders in America are in favour of full-term abortions. So that means that when the baby is born, or slightly before it, they can decide to kill it. Par um, parenting group in America have been selling baby parts, beating hearts and heads, and so on and so on. If you, you can check that out. Don't take my word for it. You go and check it out. In New Zealand, 13,000 abortions. We will be moving to full-term abortions. Believe you me, progressives don't just stop where they are. We've seen it in America where they wanted abortion and it's gone now to full-term abortion. And by decriminalising the act of abortion and making it just like removing an appendix, it removes the way for anything else that may follow. And they're not just going to stop where they are now. They've seen it with virtually everything they've done in our culture. So, of course, it doesn't happen. We don't have um, gods that are made of brass that we heat up. We don't have brazen altars in the public square. It just happens in hospital incinerators, clinics, incinerators of clinics and wards and stuff like that. That's where it happens in our country. But it's the same effect. It doesn't really matter whether it happens in the public square or whether it happens in a hospital. It's still exactly the same. Some child that's made in the image of God being murdered. Now, where did this happen? It happened in a place called Gehenna, the Valley of the Son of Hinnon. It's a small valley in Jerusalem. There it is there. It's taken in the 1950s. That's just recently. Okay, gone. word for Gehenna is hell in the, old, in the, in the New Testament. Jesus described hell as being the place where they offered babies up for sacrifice. 
that's chilling. Because we're made in the image of God. What could be worse than killing something that's made in the image of God? That's Jesus' representation of hell. See why we need a shift in New Zealand? Okay. The sad thing about this, well, one, it happened, but Manasseh actually repented. But it was too late. Right at the end of his life, he repented, turned back to God, and tried to put things right. But he destroyed so many lives. You look at the lives that are being destroyed in New Zealand because of all the social experiments that have been going over the last 30, 40 years. I mean, my wife's a teacher. She sees it firsthand. Is this terrible? Yes, it is. Should we despair? No, because God is still in control. God can overrule and touch people and change the, the trajectory of their lives. But we all have a choice. We've got a choice here this morning as a church and as, a, as individuals. And look, there are people asking questions. There are people that are concerned. I'm dealing with a number of non-Christians asking questions about stuff because they can see what's happening. And we're, we're, as Christians, we've got answers. We don't need to live in despair. We can be, it can hurt us deeply what's happening. But we don't have to live out of that. We live out of heaven and bring heaven's answers to the hell that our people, people are creating in New Zealand and people are finding in so many families' lives. So what's the answer? Well, if you go to chapter 22, and I won't read it out again, Josiah was a king who started a change. Amazing. At eight, he became king. Look, it only takes one person. You don't have to be old. Rachel may only be, what, 15, 16, or 17, or whatever. Whatever. <laughs> you can start with one person. It can start with a younger person. They can change the destiny, the trajectory of other people around them, and a church, and a nation. But one of the things that Josiah did, he rediscovered the book of the law. And I actually believe that this is a key for our church today. You may say, well, look, we use the Bible in church. Of course. How many Bibles sitting are sitting on people's shelves in our community that they never read? They never read it. What about our church? I'd like to suggest to you, we need to discover the importance and the challenge of the message of the Bible anew in our church right here. Now let me give you some examples. As, as our culture moves further and further away from the word of God, I believe it seems the church takes the Bible less and less seriously. It should be the other way around. Now I want to give you some examples. You go to a lot of churches today, and I've been to quite a few. You hardly get any Bible reading in them. You go to a Catholic church, and I have some disagreements with theology, but you get an Old Testament and New Testament reading every Sunday. You go to a lot of Protestant churches, they hardly even read the Bible. What's that saying? Look, we have topical preaching a lot, and, and, and topical preaching's got its place. But what happens, when we, when we preach topically all the time, we cherry-pick topics that are easy or we like or popular or suitable. If we have to go through the Bible or through books of the Bible, we have to face some of the hard issues. And I think topical preaching, while I agree with it in part, and, and I enjoy a lot of topical preaching, I think it's, we're, we're missing out on some other aspects of biblical teaching. Where do we teach the hard stuff, the, 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 the doctrines, the, the heavy stuff, as it were, the really important stuff? Okay. I've got a really good friend who um, 
he was brought up in the Salvation Army, and he was in our church in Awaka, and he's a really good friend of mine. I go hunting with him a lot. And he's, you'd say he's a straight-down-the-line Bible believer, real evangelical Christian. Well, he said to me a while ago, he said, people are born homosexuals. I said, well, that's not what the Bible says. And then a little while later, a while ago, he said to me, he said, oh, Muslims worship the same God we do. I said, well, why don't you just have a look at the differences? And then he said to me on the same trip, he said, I believe hell is just a figment of the imagination. If I'd been a little... I was, I was so shocked. I should have said to him, if you believe that about hell, why don't you believe it about heaven? And then what do you got left? Now, where's this coming from? Where's it coming from? Well, he's been sitting in a Pentecostal church for about the last 25, 30 years when I believe a lot of the teaching of Pentecostal churches is about that thick. It has very little depth because a lot of the Pentecostal pastors are not trained, don't have any background. They cherry-pick stuff. And I think it's a, it's a consequence of, of um, our lack of upholding the Bible as the Word of God. Look, I remember talking to Baptist church leaders years ago when I was in full-time ministry. And I was appalled at their lack of respect for the authority of the Bible. That was about 25, 30 years ago. And I think we're seeing the downstream effect of this now. Well, so many Christians, so many churches are, are hooking into kind of social agendas. Lost their way with, with Scripture. Do you agree with what I'm saying? I believe we need a reformation where the Word of God is central but in a way that is more profound than what we're seeing now. That's all I'm saying. I'm not being critical of what we're doing because you know, we're looking for more. We're looking for what God can do for us. But when Josiah rediscovered the word, you have a read of what happened. It changed the nation. It changed the nation. And they instituted the Passover again. If we don't take the Bible as seriously as God wants us to, it's going to have an impact on our culture. I remember when I first became a Christian, people were doing Bible studies everywhere. Hardly ever hear of people doing Bible studies today. Maybe they do, but I just don't hear about it. So, see, what happens when you have truth, it draws a line. The dignity of human life is restored. The occult was removed in Josiah's day. There was a moral cleansing, and the Passover was reinstituted. So, what should be our response? Well, can I just encourage you to think about what I've been saying? Pray about it. There are no simplistic answers. Ask, what is God saying to me in this? What is one thing that I can do? One thing that I can do that can make a difference. Recommit yourself to standing up for your faith. You might be in a situation where it's challenging, and many of us are. Speak out. Don't take, don't take a step back. Be like Rachel. Take a step forward. But be incredibly loving and wisdom wise about what you do. Don't back down. As Christians, we don't need to apologize for what we believe. It is truth and it brings life. And what other people believe, what the devil's pushing, brings death. It's sin. It brings death. Cancel the press. <laughs> Pray for our leaders. And ask how we can develop a culture in our church that, that perhaps expresses more of what I've been saying. Though. You can work through that. But there are no quick fixes. But I want to say that if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you identify with the, the vortex of sin that's maybe wrecked your life. You, you picture yourself as part of that. You've had, you know, your life going downhill. 
only person that can step in and change it is Jesus. That's what he came to do, to bring heaven to earth, to bring heaven into the hell of what man has created on earth. If you're a Christian and you're living an unholy life, you need to repent of it. You know, we can't beat around today. You want the fire of God to be in our church? It's not going to come while we keep living sinful lives as Christians. Ain't gonna, it's not going to happen. You need to repent. And finally, my last comment is go forth in confidence in the victory of Jesus. Just go forth in confidence. Pray for wisdom. Pray for boldness. Pray that you will be God's ambassador for the love that, can, that comes out of heaven. Amen. Music team, thank you.